name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to a bonus edition of the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what the radio doesn't report and what the telly doesn't tell you. Today we're delighted to share with you an exclusive interview about the coronavirus pandemic with the UK's former Chief Scientific Advisor Sir David King, courtesy of our colleague Sam Bright at Byline TV. First, though, a reminder that the Byline Times can report without fear or favour because we owe no allegiance to any media mogul, to any corporate interest or to any political party. We are funded by our subscribers, people like you. So if you want to support good, honest journalism, a subscription to our monthly paper, the Byline Times, costs just £36 a year. That also pays for this podcast, our brilliant news-breaking website and it supports Byline TV too. You'll find more details about how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com, and if you have already subscribed, thank you. Now, Sir David King was the government's chief scientific advisor from 2000 to 2007, and he chairs Independent SAGE, a group of scientists who are working together to provide independent scientific advice to the UK government and the public on how to minimise deaths and support Britain's recovery from the COVID-19 crisis. He's an immensely credible voice when it comes to talking about Britain's failure to lock down earlier, test and trace, and the late closure of our borders. Sam Bright from Byline TV went to interview him in his garden, hence the rustling sounds, and asked whether the government had followed the science when dealing with the pandemic as it had always claimed. Well, the key test of any government that says it's following the science is, are the scientists able to say what advice they're putting into government? And the reason we set up Independent SAGE in the first place was because we didn't even know who the members of SAGE were that had been set up to manage this epidemic back in February, March last year. So, I I, I mean, if, if you look at Independent SAGE, we were set up in order to be transparent about what we thought the advice ought to be to government at each stage of the epidemic in Britain. And what, what I mean by this is we were not saying we wish they would have done this in the past. We were saying this is where we are today, however we got here, and this is the advice we put into government for future actions. Mm. Yes. And obviously you've been on the inside of government, you've been in that role as chief scientific advisor. What's the relationship like between those senior advisors and the politicians? Could you give us an insight into what your experiences were? Yes, and I, I think the, the way I can answer that is that when I joined government, it was Tony Blair who was my first prime minister. I've worked with four prime ministers because I stayed on all the way through Cameron and Theresa May. Um, when I joined government, I, I did explain that following the uh, BSE crisis in Britain, we had a Phillips Commission report and they had said, ministers were saying, we are following the science advice. But it turns out that afterwards we were able to find out the scientists were not giving the advice that they were following. And so Phillips said that chief scientific advisors ought to be free to put their opinions directly into the public domain. Now, this is a very important challenge for the chief scientific advisor. Chief scientific advisor has to keep the trust of the prime minister and the cabinet, but at the same time, 
I saw my function as keeping the trust of the public. And so if I put advice into the Prime Minister, as I told him, then I would have to put it into the public domain, not immediately, but maybe a few weeks later, on any given issue. And so when it came to the foot and mouth disease epidemic in 2001, and the Prime Minister decided to put me in charge of running it, meaning he was not going to interfere. And I was the one appearing daily on television and radio, explaining what my objectives were, what my strategy was for getting us out of the epidemic. And when I say my strategy, it was given to me by a group of experts. And that is the model which, which, which was being followed in the sense that when SAGE was set up by Sir Patrick, he was taking advice from that group of ex experts. But the difference is that every time a science advisor appeared on television, he was standing next to the Prime Minister. And there was a clear question in the public's mind. Is this person free to say what advice he's actually given to the Prime Minister? And that's during the current coronavirus during pandemic. During the, the current coronavirus uh, pandemic. Yes. So has the government been as transparent as you would have liked? I mean, obviously not. You, As you said, you set up Independent Sage to provide more transparent advice to the public than has been given. I think that this, this question of uh, transparent advice uh, which I saw as absolutely crucial, uh, has, has not exactly been adhered to um, by the previous chief scientific advisor to the present one and by the present one. Uh, there is this sense in which you are a confidant of the Prime Minister and the Cabinet. You're brought into their discussions and you are obviously uh, listening to discussions that isn't taken into the public domain. So you, you are a confidant, but at the same time, it takes a big step to say, and now, Cabinet, I've got to go to the public and say, you haven't taken my advice, but nevertheless, I haven't changed my advice. Yes. How, how could they have done that, do you think? During, I mean, obviously, they're in a very difficult situation, but how could they have done that, expressed to the public that perhaps at times they had different recommendations than the government was taking to the people? I mean, actually, this was, did happen subsequently. So when it came to the, the need for a lockdown in October, November uh, and approaching Christmas, uh, it is very clear because the chief scientific advisor and the chief medical officer put their advice into the public domain that they were calling for a lockdown and the prime minister was not taking that advice. And now, of course, Every chief scientific advisor knows this. You are giving advice, you're not making the decisions. And so I would never disagree with the decision that my prime minister made. I would simply say, this was my advice. Of course. And obviously we've seen a staggering death toll in this country from the pandemic. What do you think the key missteps have been um, during this long year and a bit now? Delays in going into lockdown. Uh, that's the first thing. Uh, and that is really critically important because if you have a disease that has got out of control, and of course I'm going to say that should never have happened to allow it to get under control, 
But if it has got out of control, so the pandemic has gone right across the country, it's appearing in every town and village, you have no choice but to go into lockdown. It's a blunt instrument. You're asking everyone to isolate from everybody else, not just the people who have the disease. So each time, starting with March, we should have gone into the first lockdown on the 5th of March, not on the 23rd of March. And this is the point at which the disease presence in the country, in terms of the number of people going down with it, was doubling every three to four days. It was quadrupling every week. Right? So this is when the pandemic took off. We actually had a football match in Liverpool. I'm a mm. Liverpool supporter. Likewise, uh, yeah. <laughs> good, well done, Sam. <laughs> so uh, we both wish that match had never happened yeah. for all sorts of different reasons. Yes. But the point is that the Spanish supporters who came over to Liverpool were not allowed to attend a football match in their own country because that had already been stopped because of the disease spreading. But we allowed it here and similarly the Chelmsford horse racing. So these, these I'm afraid if I was being very rational and if I was saying this must have been the advice of a scientist or a scientist group, they must have been thinking in terms of herd immunity which means let the disease spread around the country, have a football match here, a horse racing there, we'll spread it quickly, we get over the worst as quickly as possible and then we're through because most of us would have had the disease and we'd be fine. And you might remember the Prime Minister saying to us very early on, mid-March, on television, many of us will lose loved ones, preparing us to see that older people were going to die sooner. So I, I think my, my second point is, first of all, go into lockdown quickly. You've got to get ahead of a pandemic. If you sit by and watch it spread, it becomes more and more difficult to actually stop the disease. But the second thing is, what is the point of testing people? Now, we, we have seen ministers saying, we will have 100,000 tests a day by such and such a time, and then 150,000. But what's the point of testing people? And the answer is, as the World Health Organization advice is very clear about, we test people because we want to see if they've got the disease. We want to see they're isolated from the rest of the public. And then we also need to know who were they in contact with over the previous two weeks who might also be infected? So now we get ahead of the disease by putting all those people into isolation. You're isolating those people who are, have the disease and those who've been in contact with them from the rest of us and the rest of the population gets on with its business and the economy isn't hammered. Right? So you, you're, you're doing two things. You're managing the disease by separating those people out the virus has nowhere to go once those people have developed antibodies or have died. Right? It's got nowhere to go because they've been isolated. That's how you bring a disease under control. And you're saying we didn't have that system in place? I never heard a minister of government saying the whole point of testing is to isolate people and we have to make sure they're isolated and supported to go into isolation and in isolation. In other words, if I set up a private agency in the middle of a pandemic 
to run the find, test, trace, isolate and support system, I'm going to have it operating from London throughout the whole country. But wait a minute, how does the general practice, the public health system work? It works by having general practices throughout the country. And people use shoe leather to check that people are in isolation. If I ring your doorbell and you can't answer and you can't prove that you're there, you're not in isolation. And so now I can go in, I, I may find you, I, I may find that you have difficulty being in isolation because your family depended on your wage. So I have to support the people who go into isolation if they're on weekly wages, for example. I have to be able to encourage people to go into isolation. I can't just ring them up, perhaps from some other country, and say, you have been in contact with somebody with a disease, go into isolation. Down goes the phone, there's no check that they've gone into isolation. Mm. So this seems a dual problem. The first being self-isolation payments, which have notoriously been quite low. And I believe you're saying the um, centralised approach of test and trace that they should have used existing regional health systems to do that. Is that correct? Absolutely. If you look at the success of the rollout of vaccination, how has that happened in contrast to the failure of the test, trace and isolate system? It is that we, we're running it through the public health system, we're running it through local authorities, we're running it through hospitals, we're running it through general practices, and all of this is being reported back to general practice. So I've been vaccinated twice, and my GP knows that. Right? My GP knows each time I was vaccinated. So it's all on record. Those people who had the disease in the early phases, there's no record even of them having had it. They just know they had the symptoms. But at that point, unbelievably, we went through this period from January 23rd, when in Lancet, Chinese scientists published the most detailed information about the nature of this virus and its impact on human beings. Everything we needed to know was published in that paper. 23rd of January, January 2020. 2020. Wow. In the British journal Lancet. As a result of that publication, the World Health Organization said in February, Everyone needs to go through this process of find, trace, taste, isolate and support. Otherwise, you'll have to go into lockdown. It's all set out there. Make sure your hospitals have all of the ventilators that are needed to deal with those who've got the illness. Make sure that your doctors have all of the equipment they need to protect them from the virus. Let me take you to Greece, the part of the, the European Union that was best behaved. In January, they were sending ships and aeroplanes out around the world, seeking places that had ventilators, that had PPE equipment for their hospitals. And by the time the disease arrived, so this is before the disease arrived in Greece, by the time it arrived in March, they were all prepared. They then, and this is really also exemplary, Prime Minister goes on television one evening at six o'clock and says every day at six o'clock, our chief medical officer is going to talk to you about what you have to do as we manage this pandemic. We're going into a lockdown right away. Not one death in Greece at this point when they went into that lockdown. Right? And so, of course, Greece barely suffered from this first wave. 
They did open up their economy to tourism in, uh, in the summer because they knew their economy would be crippled without that. Yeah. And of course then the disease came back, but then they handled it well afterwards. Um, what was your but in February we didn't do a thing. Yeah, we was, didn't do a thing. I was going to ask your reflections on seeing that first wave and our lack of preparedness. I mean, you, you were the head, you're the sort of figurehead of the scientific community and attached to that the medical community. Seeing doctors and nurses on the front line being quite desperate about that situation, what were your reflections and, looking and, back and on it? You will know that many of our doctors and nurses were dying. You know, there's there, there a real problem because they didn't have the equipment to protect themselves as these people came into their hospitals. And I, I, I think for me, I, I thought this is, uh, this is rather shocking, uh, and I'm understating myself then, uh, because even though we knew from this paper published by the Chinese in The Lancet that the older members of the population were most vulnerable and the younger members not so vulnerable, nevertheless, losing, I mean, I'm over 80, and I, I really don't like myself being written off as of no value to society, because that's really what it seems we're saying if we're going for herd immunity. But nevertheless, what we have subsequently learned, if I can talk about herd immunity, is long COVID has tremendous implications. There, there are people ongoing now 12 months on from getting COVID, not even getting it too badly, but then having long COVID. This is a life-shortening process, right? The vascular system is suffering, and this means kidneys and lungs. It's all really pretty bad. When we look at, at younger people, long COVID even exists amongst children, right? So children who didn't even notice that they had the disease. So I think, I think the, the whole notion of herd immunity was, was wrong. And you might remember in the early stages, even right up to the summer last year, we were hearing that you have to have a balance. It's not just separate people out who have the disease, etc. It's what are we doing to our economy? We've got to have the economy fully up and running. This is a totally false dichotomy. There is no difference between managing an epidemic properly and managing it for your economic growth properly. Because if you do separate everyone else, everyone who has the disease and has been in contact with them from everybody else, your economy runs on. And I, I think that was another thing that really rather frustrated me. And the question has got to be, we don't know the answer to this. Were the advisors saying this? It is possible. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've seen videos of people my age in Australia and they've been going out to parties and bars and restaurants for weeks and months. It seems as though it's a completely different planet oh, yes. to ours. Yes. And yet, yeah, and that's obviously because they've suppressed the virus properly. Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, Singapore. It's not, it's not just these isolated parts of the world down in the Southern Hemisphere. If we, if we look at South Korea, very close to China, where the outbreak initially occurred. Um, and by the way, we had a very clear signal. We all remember that the disease seemed to arrive in Italy, in northern Italy. And northern Italy isn't far from Britain. And how many tourists travel between Italy and Britain every single day? 
it was bound to arrive unless we stopped our leaky borders, right? So the disease was coming in through the borders. We never controlled the borders until late this year, right? So it's, uh, it's a total... I, I'm just stunned because it just seems to me that there's no rational understanding of how to manage an epidemic. If I take you to an Ebola outbreak that occurred in West Africa a few years ago. Amongst other countries, we had medical advisors going out there. What was their advice to the local community? If somebody is dying of Ebola, don't even go near them. And they would say, but we have to bury this person. We have a, a whole tradition. They'd say, do not go near them. You, you will not isolate yourself as soon as you don't isolate from that person you're going to die from Ebola and if we can isolate all of those who've been in we, we carried that lesson there and it was followed through and the Ebola epidemic was wiped out yeah yeah but we didn't in this case I wanted to ask you as well about the outsourcing of government work during this pandemic obviously we've seen billions spent and billions more planned to be spent on um, test and trace, on personal protective equipment, etc. What have your reflections on being on that great outsourcing effort? I think what, what is interesting is that the, the outsourcing is public money being spent in the private sector to manage a pandemic while it's in full flow, literally in full flow. And so this isn't what the private sector is particularly good at is competition. If there's a, a, some money available to do a job, set up the competition and see how efficient it is. And that tends to run more efficiently than a publicly funded enterprise. But if we, if we look at the public health service, this public health service that we have, that has been severely underfunded since 2010, which is a major part of our crisis, the public health service is the best way to handle a pandemic. Right? That, that is how you handle it. You don't handle it by pumping taxpayers' money into the private sector without any competition. And then the question has to be, the companies that received the funds from government, were these companies the experts in healthcare? I'm going to suggest that actually none of them knew anything about healthcare. They had to get consultants in at great expense to give them any knowledge and information about healthcare. And then we have our general practice system and our hospital system, which where the expertise is. If we had pumped public money into improving the ability of our health service to respond, I'm pretty confident we would have got a much, much better result. You've mentioned the vaccine programme, the success of it, and the fact that it's run more locally. Does the government deserve some credit for the vaccine effort, or has it been blown out of proportion? No, I think, I think the government does deserve credit, and I think this is where I would give Sir Patrick the credit, because that is Sir Patrick's background, pharmacology. He, he understands what the ability of the new science of vaccines is. He understands it very well. 
And so I think here's where his advice would have been absolutely crucial. Uh, the, the development of the vaccines, for example, in, in Oxford, but also in other parts of the world, it, it didn't all begin in January 2020 when this disease took off. The, the new vaccine production uh, processes had many years of research behind them, in this country especially, because we're very strong in, in these areas, but in other countries as well. So, in a way, it was no surprise that immediately the people in these research areas thought, here's our opportunity to get in in real time and make a difference. So I think that was the, the most important thing that happened. The research scientists in Oxford, in AstraZeneca, but in other laboratories around the world. We all know Pfizer, etc. cetera, these uh, the vaccines have been produced in Russia as well. Not all of them the same new technique, but they're all new techniques because you could never before produce a vaccine so quickly. So I think this is the crucial thing. The, the rollout has been understood literally as a lifesaver by the government. It is a lifesaver. But the other lifesavers we've missed out on. I mean, I, I am going to say that the official estimate of the number dead is still under 130,000 from COVID-19. I think the unofficial figure, which is probably closer to the number I would fa fancy, is over 150,000 deaths so far in this country. Per 100,000, the number of deaths in this country is still one of the very worst in the world. The hit on our economy, also one of the very worst in the world. Uh, but I, I guess what I'm really trying to emphasize now is how many deaths could have been avoided with quick action earlier on, on find, test, trace, isolate and support, but also on going into lockdown when it all became too desperate? Do you, do you have any estimate of, I, of that? In excess of 100,000. Really? Right? Life so, saved. Yeah. yeah. So, yes, vaccines are a big lifesaver, but there were other lifesavers at hand before. Yeah. And what's your read of the current situation in the pandemic? Obviously, we're relaxing restrictions over the next few weeks. We already have relaxed some restrictions. Uh, is there anything that we should be... I mean, we've been worried a lot over this past year. Is there anything that we should be fearful of? Right. So if, if we were talking about vaccination uh, against one of the common diseases that we get vaccines against, we all know that once you've vaccinated 80% of the population, you more or less have it under control because the, the, the disease doesn't have a chance to spread. And we are well over 50% of our adult population vaccinated now. And I, I think therefore we're in a relatively strong position. But the problem is that we don't understand the efficacy of this vaccine program against the new variants. The biggest fright for me came from Chile because Chile was the third best vaccinated country in the world per 100,000 people and Chile is now in their worst wave and the reason is because the new variant in Brazil has come over to Chile it's now right across South America and so it looks as if many people who were vaccinated in Chile have gone down with the disease, must have, because otherwise they wouldn't have such a, such a big third wave of the pandemic. 
So my, my worry is that uh, our, our leaky borders, and by the way, just putting a, a red mark against Brazil and Chile doesn't do it because people may well travel from Chile to a country that we haven't labeled as a red, red country and, and then come on to us. And so it's, we, we still have leaky borders and we have had all the way through. So the real worry is these mutants. Um, but I do think the rollout of the vaccines, meaning by the end of July, all of the adult population will have had an opportunity to be vaccinated. You know what is really interesting is the high rate of acceptance of vaccination. You know, everyone over 50, 90% have accepted to be vaccinated. Mm. I mean, that is, that is incredible. Yes. So there's a real understanding that this is a lifesaver. I just wanted to ask you finally as well about, obviously we can have these discussions with prominent individuals and people in the field who've had experience on the inside, but really the public inquiry is going to get to the, the bottom of all this, of what has happened over this past year. What's your view on how it should be conducted, how soon it should be conducted, who should be involved, etc.? The public inquiry is really in the hands of the Prime Minister and so uh, the question is going to be, he has said there will be a public inquiry, the question is when and should it be delayed? And uh, I, I think the, the answer is I believe we should have had a public inquiry much, much earlier to help the government to correct any errors that it might have made in controlling this disease. Uh, if the public inquiry runs after the pandemic, three or four years' time maybe, we, we don't know how long this is going to run, but the way it's running rampant in the world now, I'm not sure that we're going to be done with this for, in the shorter term. Um, three to four years' time, is that really timely? So that, that would be my question about a public inquiry. It would have been much better in uh, the summer of last year but it should, would have to be a quick public inquiry. Typically, a public inquiry would take two, three years to report, sometimes much longer. Yeah, but we want it, we want it now. Like you say, hundreds of thousands of people have, have died. They'll, they, at the very least, deserve some answers, surely. Yeah. And by the way, that's not counting the number with long COVID, which is a large number. Yeah. And how, how long do you think we'll be social distancing and wearing masks, you say that we won't be out of this in the short term? I, I think the, the question of social distancing and wearing masks is, is somewhat easier. Uh, certainly there are workplaces where people are necessarily very close to each other and there I would still keep wearing masks until we see this pandemic globally over. Right? I, I think we have to really keep doing that. There's no. Initially, there was a big resistance against mask wearing in this country, and people were saying, "Well, it's the Chinese and the Japanese who do that. It's not in our culture." Now it's in our culture. Really, it's become accepted, and I think I would just keep wearing masks when you're indoors. When you're outdoors, this isn't nearly so important because the wind blows the the virus away. But this is an airborne disease. And if you go indoors and you breathe out 
the, the virus into the air indoors and there's no wind indoors, no windows open, then of course you're going to breathe it in. And breathing it into your lungs is the guaranteed way to get, uh, get this virus operating in yourself. So right, so in other see. words, it's not a matter of touching and eating. Mm. It's much, much more airborne. Yes, uh, it's certainly something I don't object to. And many people don't object to, I think, wearing masks indoors. But several, is this a thing that might last several years then, in your view? Yes, I, I mean, indoors uh, without ventilation. Yeah. So another question is, can people adjust the ventilation? And the biggest problem has been in our schools, where we are sending children in state schools into classes of 30 plus. And uh, the, the, those classrooms are not very big. And so the, the kids are either necessarily sitting close to each other or they're having strange timetables so that they can be sitting further apart. So one way or another, I think we're all going to welcome the point where we can get back to some normal reality. Yes. I think that's a very good place to end. Okay. Fascinating. Thank you, David. Thank really you. appreciate it. Thank you very much, Sam. Sir David King with Sam Bright from Byline TV. And you can read more from Sam at bylinetimes.com, where he's our chief politics and investigations reporter. And of course, you can see more of him at Byline TV. Before we go, just a reminder to please subscribe to our monthly paper, The Byline Times, if you can. It funds this podcast, the website, and it supports Byline TV as well. Get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been a bonus episode of the Byline Times podcast. See you next time.